Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. The other day, it was the International Holocaust Remembrance Day that marked the 78th anniversary of the liberation of the death camp Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most brutal extermination camp of the 20th century. I want to say a few words. I could have done this last week before the uh, annual remembrance, but I wanted to see what was being said by other people so I could uh, make an intelligent comment. The memory of the Holocaust must lead us to deep deliberations about the responsibility of leaders and the quality and values of society as a whole. We have to view the the Holocaust Day and the memory, memory of the Holocaust as a mission, a global mission, to preserve and connect Jewish heritage and history, to perpetuate one of the most important statements that the Jewish people has ever known, which is never again. To symbolize the significance of the Holocaust for Jews of the entire world, the UN General Assembly, which is not particularly friendly to Israel, the state of the Jews, has designated January 27th as the date for the international commemoration of Holocaust victims. Why did they choose that date? Because it's the day that the Red Army, the Russian Army, entered Auschwitz. And Auschwitz is the camp that symbolized more than any other the attempt of the total annihilation of the Jewish people. Total annihilation of the Jewish people in the 20th century. It's hard to believe, even now. They established an industry of death, which was the result of a hateful ideology and of racism. This day gathers all the Jews around the world under one common umbrella, which is responsibility for the memory of our Jewish heritage. Perhaps most of all, this day symbolizes what many Holocaust researchers have turned the globalization of Holocaust remembrance, which means over the years the Holocaust has become, especially in Europe and the Western world, a global memory and an integral part of Jewish identity. In almost every major city in the world today, there are museums for the commemoration of the Holocaust and institutions dedicated to the commemoration of the Holocaust. Now, in fact, in most cases, collective memory represents a shared memory there could be an ethnic group, a national group, or religious group, 
But collective memory is very important. The Holocaust, however, is an event that is stored in the collective memory of humanity, as it should be, and it's also present in the countries that were not associated with it. Now, on the other hand, there's always the danger of Holocaust denial, which is not uncommon today, and anti-Semitism continues as a widespread phenomenon. It threatens the human pain of the Holocaust and challenges the need to continue to establish the memory as an exception in the international landscape. It constitutes an ethical mission for Jews and for non-Jews alike. The Holocaust evokes a sense of pain, the pain that we heard with our own ears from Holocaust survivors was a significant part of the education and values and morals, and indeed it should be. As time goes on, there are fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors, and the responsibility preserving the memory rests on the shoulders of everybody today. Because the younger generation, had they been raised, they didn't experience the knowing even the survivors who were a primary source. So one of the most common and urgent questions asked by educators and researchers engaged in Holocaust education is, what will the teaching and commemoration of the Holocaust look like in the not-too-distant future when their survivors will no longer live among us? I personally knew many, many survivors, and as the years go by, I still meet some survivors, very, very old people. What will Holocaust Remembrance Day and what's what the ceremonies look like? And right now, there are trips taken to Poland and preparation for such trips. What will it be like in 10 years and 20 years? Or most importantly, how will we succeed in transmitting the importance and relevance of Holocaust remembrance to future generations. We have to ensure that is relevant and preserve the values that these events have caused us to develop as a society. As a matter of fact, especially in the last year, since the beginning of the war between Russia and Ukraine, the state of Israel has been a safe haven for Jews around the world. The citizens of Ukraine needed a connection to the Jewish world in order to immigrate to Israel. They were not required to hide their identity and even saw the sense of Jewish pride as part of themselves. Now, the, the state of Israel and its partners didn't stand idly by during this war which has been going on since, I think, February. They created alternatives for Ukrainian Jews. They raised funds for active rescue activities and amount of immigrant absorption here in Israel that hasn't been seen in many years. So that's an important responsibility, not only to remember the Holocaust, 
but to ensure things of this nature should not happen again by making sure that more people around the world, all around the world, know what the Holocaust was. There are people who deny the Holocaust today, and if you deny it, you're never going to learn from it. That's a, that's a, that's a possible tragedy. The, the, uh, the, uh, is the, uh, by the way, it's uh, known at all, the, uh, the, this year was the 81st anniversary of the Wannsee Conference in Nazi Germany in Berlin on January 20th, 1942. It was convened by the Nazi leadership to address what they called the final solution to the Jewish question which in sense was a blueprint for the annihilation of European Jewry, which was met by the indifference and inaction of the international community. They, many people knew about it, and but they did absolutely nothing about it. Also, this coming Passover in a couple of months will be the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto the uprising began on April 19, 1943, which was the most courageous civilian uprising in all the war years. And the, the conference where they, where they wanted to make the, uh, came up with the final solution was called the Wannsee Conference, a location of a place out, outside of Berlin. The, uh, the interesting that uh, there's, uh, in the wake of the 75th anniversary, also of the arrest and disappearance of Raoul Wallenberg on January 17, 1945, who was a Swedish diplomat whose leadership and mobilization of other courageous diplomats was able to rescue an estimated 100,000 Jews in the last six months of 1940 or 1944, he did more, more than any other single government or organization, including, of course, the United States and Great Britain. He demonstrated how one person with compassion to care and courage can act to confront evil. <clears throat> and he disappeared into the Russian gulag. Nobody ever knew what happened to him. There are statues of him in several places, but he's coming from a neutral country. As I said, he saved more than 100,000 Jews. An unbelievable act that very few can imitate, but we must admire it. There is today, unfortunately, a global resurgence of anti-Semitic acts incitement and terror. This anti-Semitism is the oldest, longest, most enduring, and most dangerous all hatreds. It's a virus which mutates and metastasizes over time what, but is grounded in one foundational, historical, generic, anti-Semitic conspirational trope, namely the Jews and the Jewish people in Israel 
are the enemy of all that's good and the embodiment of all that is evil, regardless of what moment in time we are experienced or living in. Anti-Semitism is the measles of the world, and it is still here. And so, this is a historical moment. We should ask ourselves, what, have been, what has been learned and what must be done? The, the first lesson, I think, to be learned is the danger of forgetting that so many were, were victims were killed. We must remember that. You have to remember that the victims of the Holocaust defamed, demonized, dehumanized, and, and, and as a justification for genocide. We must understand that the mass murder of six million Jews is not a matter of abstract statistics. Every person had a name and identity. As the Talmud reminds us, whoever saves a single life as this is as he or she saved the entire universe. Just as if you kill a single person, it's the same as you killed an entire universe. So we are responsible for each other, and that is one of the lessons from the Holocaust. The second lesson, of course, is the danger of anti-Semitism itself. It's the oldest, most enduring of hatreds, and of course it's the most lethal. So, anti-Semitism is a metaphor for radical hate. Approximately 1.3 million people were deported to the death camp of Auschwitz. Let there be no mistake about it. Jews were murdered at Auschwitz because of anti-Semitism. But anti-Semitism itself didn't die. It raised the bloody canary in the mine shaft of global evil today. And as we have learned only too painfully, while anti-Semitism begin with the Jews, it doesn't necessarily always stop with the Jews. Anti-Semitism, in a sense, is toxic to democracies because it threat not only to Jews, but it's a threat threat to common humanity. So in a sense, in combating anti-Semitism, we defend democracy. The, de the genocide of European Jewry succeeded not only because of the machinery of death, because of state-sanctioned ideology of hate. In, in, in Europe, in Germany, the Jew was seen as the personification of the devil, an enemy of mankind. And death, humanity can only be redeemed by the death of the Jews. That's what the Nazis said and convinced other people. They are cat catastrophic effects of racism. These are the chilling facts of history. The... Uh, Another enduring lesson concerns the Holocaust denial movement, which is really a form of anti-Semitism. It's not just an assault on Jewish memory and human dignity. It's, it's, it constitutes an international criminal conspiracy 
to cover up the worst crime in history. There are people who said that the Holocaust was a hoax, and then they maligned the Jews for fabricating the hoax. It's our responsibility to unmask the bearers of the false witness. You have to expose the criminality of deniers of the Holocaust. At the same time, we have to protect the dignity of the victims who are now old people. And another thing, there's a problem of Holocaust distortion. This is something that's particularly weaponized by social media. It's a phenomenon that threatens not only our relationship to the truth, but our collective relationship with history. For example, the COVID-19 pandemic was weaponized with Jews blamed for manufacturing the virus and then profiting from it. There's another one is a phenomenon of Holocaust trivialization and minimization where the symbols and imagery of the Holocaust are weaponized. There's Holocaust revisionism. And these things go on. So it's nice that the UN General Assembly resolution combating, combating host, Holocaust denial was indeed voted on. But if you look at the nations in the, in the United Nations, the member nations, and how they relate to Israel, you realize that any kind of resolution they pass is totally meaningless as long as there are members of the UN who still want to destroy Israel and kill Jews. The, uh, this, this is a very serious problem. The, uh, we have to remember that the Holocaust was state-sanctioned genocide, and that is something that, that is also is met with indifference and conspiracies of silence. What happens is the Nazis said that they were what they were going to do, and the international community did nothing about it. Even the Western countries, maybe especially the Western countries, they made all kind of uh, meetings and resolutions, but actually did nothing. They wouldn't even bomb the death camp at Auschwitz, and that's something we have to learn. I say that, say that as somebody who was born and raised in America. America, had, America has wonderful values, but the denial of the Holocaust and the fact that the United States said nothing about it really is a black mark on American history. And also, a lesson causing us to combat mass atrocity and see to it that people who are engaged in that kind of thing are brought to justice. If you allow these things to happen with impunity, it only insensitizes mass atrocity. If you don't do something about it, it's going to happen again. So it's the, there is a lesson to be learned about humanity. The... Uh, the Nuremberg crimes were also the crimes of the elites, of the Nazis. But you have to really know that it wasn't just the leadership. It was a lot of other people. So uh, it, it's important for us to remember what happened and, and see to it that other countries 
teach about the Holocaust. I look at what's happening in an education, for example, today in the United States, and it's not just Holocaust memory that's not being taught. Education in general in the United States is in bad shape. But it's very important that people all over learn about the Holocaust and the evil that it was so this kind of thing will not happen again to anybody. Uh, okay, I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Warning, take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, I'd like to touch upon uh, several small items in this portion of the program. First, I want to talk about the fight for Jerusalem. What do I mean by that? Last week, the newspaper Haaretz, uh, is considered the intellectual paper here in Israel, they ran an article jointly with the New York Times calling on Washington from re- to refrain from building a new embassy in Jerusalem on what they called land stolen by Israel. The New York Times used a slightly more delicate title referring to the land in question as confiscated Palestinian land. The place where they're supposed to build the new embassy is about uh, a mile away from where I live. And right now there's a consulate there, an American consulate, a beautiful building, by the way. And there's a bus that runs past, almost past my house that goes directly there. But there are those who feel that somehow this is stolen land. The, uh, so this article that was both in Haaretz and the New York Times was plastered on the front page of their joint publication. The author of this thesis was Professor Rashid Khalidi. He's a noted Palestinian academic at Columbia University, and it quickly became evident what the author was trying to do. This central argument in this joint article between the Haaretz and the New York Times The central argument in his writings is that Israel is a form of settler colonialism that fought against the authentic national movements in the land. In this article, he reminds readers that his family, his own family's roots in Jerusalem go back more than a thousand years. According to the website of the Al-Khalidis, their lineage in Jerusalem can be traced traced back to the 14th century, though some tie the family to Khawad ibn al-Wahid, the Muslim commander in Byzantine Syria. Now, the Khalidi family dates back roughly to the time of 
what we call Nachmanides, the Ramban, who reestablished the Jewish community in Jerusalem after the Crusaders destroyed it in 1099. The Jewish people have demonstrated propensity to return to the historic homeland after disasters, like after the Crusader conquest and even after the Roman occupation. So this Palestinian writer, Rashid Khalidi, he has no interest in reminding his readers of the Jewish connection to Jerusalem. There is a useful survey of the land from the Jerusalem District Committee, which handles the granting of approval of projects uh, in Jerusalem. It includes the area's recent history. Now, Khalidi, who uses this survey, reminds his readers that the land in Jerusalem, which is focused, is known as the Allenby Barracks. An aerial photograph of this area from 1917, before the British developed it, shows it had no buildings and the land was barren. Indeed, the Ottoman Empire uses an airstrip for a while before World War I. So why am I bringing this up? What's going on here? What's going going on here is not such a battle of Jerusalem history as a, as a battle over historical narratives. Its purpose is to move readers to adopt highly politicized positions and influence governments on critical questions, including the future of Jerusalem. What they're trying to do is set the stage for advocating that an American decision to build an embassy in Jerusalem would constitute a legal and moral offense. In other words, the very fact that the American embassy was moved to Jerusalem and now is building a, a new building is bringing up all kind of history from all kinds of historians about to whom the city of Jerusalem actually belong. The, uh, so as I said, it's a battle over historical narratives. The purpose is to move readers to adopt highly politicized positions and to influence their governments on critical questions, including the future of Jerusalem. So uh, the, in other words, what the what the Arab side is trying to do is say that the Americans cannot build a, a an embassy in Jerusalem, an embassy to the state of Israel, since it would be on the property that doesn't belong to to the Jerusalem, doesn't belong to the Jews. So this guy Khalidi can't resist making gratuitous remarks that the United States embassy in Jerusalem would involve entrenching Israel's apartheid policies in the city. That's his words. Very interesting, by the way. I'll tell you why. For a lot of reasons. But one, one I, can, I can tell you back that I've experienced. Has this guy ever been to Hadassah Hospital or any other Israeli hospital, for that matter, where both Jews and Arabs receive equal treatment? You go to any hospital in Israel, in particularly in the areas that are close to the um, Palestinian area, like here in Jerusalem, a, a tremendous percentage of the of the patients are Arabs. 
not, they're not Israeli citizens. They're people who know they can get good medical uh, care in a Jewish hospital. So, the uh, the if you ever if you get to any hospital, take anyone, take a Dasa hospital, as I said, would Jews and Arabs receive equal treatment? As opposed to the hospitals in South, South Africa, for example, under apartheid, to which, um, and which is what the this uh, this Palestinian tries to compare Israel to apartheid South Africa, in which blacks didn't get the same kind of treatment. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, if if you do a little research, be be beyond all the uh, this politically oriented oriented discussions, which appear both in the New York Times and Haaretz, you get the wrong impression. So, um, what I really recommend to everybody, if you can afford it, take a trip, come to Jerusalem, and the first thing you should do is go sit for a couple of hours in the waiting room of an Israeli hospital, particularly in Jerusalem, particularly in Kfar Saba, where, which are close to uh, areas where uh, there is large Arab population. And you can see that there's no apartheid. And Jerusalem's Jews and the Jewish institutions take much better care of the Arab population, even those who don't live in Jerusalem, or live in the uh, Palestinian areas, they come into Jerusalem to get served, served because they know they will get good medical service no matter who, who they are. And so it's a terrible thing when people try to talk about Israel being an apartheid state. I, I always tell people, and as I said a moment ago, go visit a hospital in Israel particularly in Jerusalem, sit there for a couple hours and, and try to tell me that Israel's an apartheid state. It doesn't, it's just not true. Now, I want to go into a different subject, which is uh, a subject which seems to have all kinds of different views. For example, the World Zionist Organization put out a report now saying that worldwide anti-Semitism is not rising. There are different Jewish organizations in America who say that anti-Semitism is rising. Of course, they're only talking about the United States. So when the World Zionist Organization puts out a report that worldwide anti-Semitism isn't, ri isn't rising, I think they're talking, uh, they're using two different population bases to come this, uh, to make their uh, uh, conclusions. Because this report that was put out by the World Zionist Organization mentioned different countries and the levels of anti-Semitism that are reported. For example, and I quote, the U.S. has seen an alarming increase in the phenomenon of anti-Semitism, adding that anti-Semitism in the United States manifests itself in disturbing trends in light of the strengthening of white supremacist organizations alongside an increase in anti-Semitic expression from the American progressive left, alongside the midterm election for the American Congress, which were a fertile ground for the spread of anti-Semitism, unquote. Now, in addition, according to this report, 
there's been a significant rise of more than 60% in the number of cases of violence against Jewish institutions. A report on this subject shows a 125% increase in the number of hate crimes against Jews in the state of New York. In central cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, there's an increase of about 20% in the first half of 2022. Now, that's interesting because this report by the World Zionist Organization explained that, for example, in the United Kingdom, the prime minister is affecting the Jewish communities in Great Britain. He's, he is recognized as a supporter, supporter of Israel. If I'm not mistaken, his name is Risha Sunak. He's the prime minister now. If I'm not mistaken, he's a Muslim. The, uh, according to official data, whatever that means, almost 800 cases of anti-Semitism were recorded in the first half of the year, which is a 43% decrease compared to the previous year. So in the first half of 2021, there were almost 1,400 cases of anti-Semitism, which was an all-time high. So the it's interesting. The, 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 I don't, these organizations make a living from looking for anti-Semites all over the place. For example, they, uh, they, they did a sample conducted on the subject of anti-Semitism in Rome, in high schools. And it is found that almost two-thirds of the students believe that anti-Semitism exists in Italy, with a quarter saying that their anti-Semitic values originate from anti-Semitism, 5% from anti-Zionism, and 30% for both factors. France, for example, is known for its high levels of anti-Semitism, and according to reports, 74% of French Jews were victims of anti-Semitic acts during their lifetime, which included derogatory comments, threats on social media, verbal threats, and physical violence. During the last decade, a constant decrease in the number of anti-Semitic incidents in Russia has been detected, though a study carried out at the beginning of the year makes it seem that anti-Semitism is still rooted in the country, finding that 30% of respondents do not want the sieges at all. And anti-Semitism on social media is increasing at an alarming rate, and unfortunately, as history has taught us, it will also lead to physical acts. So, industry, one of one of the uh, forgetting all these statistics that all these reports put out, there is no doubt that the uh, social media uh, is a good uh, source of incitement. You know, anybody who wants to can get on social media and say whatever they want. So I guess it's sort of a black flag in view of the increase in incitement on social media. So uh, that's something new. Social media, is, which is uncontrollable to a certain extent, is a tremendous source of anti-Semitism. Forget all the statistics and all the numbers. There's, there's sort of immaterial. And look at look at the overall picture. The uh, anti-Semitism rises and falls 
based on uh, a lot of things, including happenings, events that are happening at any particular time. When uh, if, if Israel is suddenly at war, or Israel is uh, the Israelis are striking into Arab terrorists. If you take a a survey of anti-Semitism, you'll find it's different than the results you get when things are quiet in Israel. So I'm not quite sure what all these numbers mean. The only thing I think is really true is anti-Semitism, which is the world's oldest hate. It's here. No, no matter whether it's up a few percent or down a few percent, it's still here. And it, it, a lot has to be done to see to it that it stays at a low simmering level. It just ain't going to go away. It's like measles. You have to catch it as much as you can. You're not going to prevent it completely. Now, having said that, I want to go on to a totally different subject. And uh, it has to do what I guess you would call Israel huddling around Tel Aviv. You know, Israel is a small country. It's roughly the size, I think, of New Jersey. And uh, most of the people live in the center part of the country, in the Tel Aviv area, although now Jerusalem is uh, uh, getting, getting to be the biggest city in Israel. There are huge land areas of Israel where nobody lives, particularly in the Negev. And up in the Galilee, there's a tremendous number of Israeli Arabs living there. But anyhow, the, the uh, Tel Aviv Central Bureau Statistics they uh, came out with a report two weeks ago that Israel is rapidly crowding toward Tel Aviv. The figures show that 40% of housing units added in the past decade were built in Tel Aviv and the cities surrounding Tel Aviv. Only 12% of the units were built in the Jerusalem area, while the Haifa and Beersheba areas received only 6%. They put out a survey, that is the Central Bureau of Statistics, put out a survey called Homes and Buildings in the State of Israel, and it monitored the number of homes in Israel cities and local authorities since 2012. Altogether, this interesting number, since that date, since 2012, 10 years ago, some 458,000 dwellings have been added to the country as a whole. That's only half a million. Some of them are new homes, some are the result of splitting existing homes, some are the result of urban renewal programs in which old residential blocks have been demolished and placed with new larger ones. The number of homes added, therefore, does not exactly match the number of new homes built, as though there is a strong connection between the numbers. Now, interestingly enough, and I don't want to bore the uh, listeners with statistics, but to get an idea, Jerusalem has added the largest number of dwellings since 2012. They've added close to 41,000 dwellings. This is more than the total number of dwellings in Herzliya. There are currently 241,000 dwellings in Jerusalem, and the city will surpass the quarter million mark within a few years. Immediately after Tel uh, Jerusalem comes Tel Aviv, which added 27,300 dwellings, slightly more than the total of, of dwellings Ranana. The number of, of uh, 
dwellings in Tel Aviv. Totally, it's 216,000. So what's happened is the two city, big cities have extended the gap between them and the cities that come after them in the urban table. In other words, if you look at Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv is just not just the city of Tel Aviv. There's a huge urban area along the Mediterranean coast that's just monstrous. So when you add homes to uh, Netanya and you add homes to uh, Petach Tikva and you add homes to Ashdod along the coast, you're simply adding to the Tel Aviv area. It's becoming a huge urban area. The, uh, the, um, in other words, if you look at it a little deeper, you see that Jerusalem is the fastest growing city in Israel. Is metropolis is the fastest growing area in Israel. So, uh, and, and metropolis is defined as a web of neighboring settlements between the, the residents, which are his connection to employment, education, culture, and shopping. Each metropolis has a dominant large city, which is the kernel of the metropolis surrounding which are rings of settlements. The connection between these settlements are measured by the frequency of journeys between them. So the whole area around Tel Aviv, which is called Gush Dan, for example, a substantial proportion of the residents travel between cities for work, entertainment, or shopping. It's the, 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 the inner part of the Gush Dan is the Tel Aviv city itself. But this metropolis extends from Ashdod in the south to Netanya in the north. So that part of Israel is a huge metropolis. And while the, the negative, it remains empty. And that is a serious problem, something that the government has to do something about. I just want to bring these, up, these numbers up for listeners just to, to hear them without knowing all the details. The problem is that the, the whole center of Israel is becoming one big city. And the truth of the matter is they have to figure out how to spread out the population. It's, it's not healthy. And it's also dangerous and is strategically poor to have so many people pushed into one area. Anyway, I just wanted to share this information with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about an issue that's really very divisive now. Over the past uh, 20 or 30 years, the Supreme Court, uh, keep in mind, by the way, that Israel does not have a written constitution. The Supreme Court took upon itself tremendous power and made it itself essentially 
the major component of the ruling of the country. In other words, in, in a country like the United States, you have a legislature, you have a uh, administrative section, which is the president, and you have a Supreme Court. So you have three different divisions of the country. And the United States has a constitution in which essentially defines the powers of those separate entities. Israel does not have a constitution. And in Israel, the government is chosen by a coalition in the legislature. It is true that there is an, an administrative group, but it is chosen by those who form the coalition in the Knesset, in Israel's parliament. And so the uh, administrative group really is a growth out of the legislative group, not totally independent, and you have the judicial section. And what's happened is, over the years, without a written constitution, the judicial section has taken upon itself a tremendous amount of power that makes it essentially not even with the other groups. So the new government is trying to take some of the power away from the judiciary, and that is a struggle now that's occurring in Israel. It gets quiet once in a while, unfortunately, because we have terror attacks, so people stop thinking and worrying about the struggles between the various groups of the government, and we spend our time worrying about just being safe here. But after any time there's a terror attack, things quiet down, we get back to arguing about the various powers of the different sections of the government. Now, right now, for example, dozens of former economy ministry directors and officials issued a warning against the proposed judicial reforms. They sent a letter to, I guess, to the government, to the prime minister, it's reported in the paper, and they wrote, there's a serious concern that the weakening of the judicial system will lead to long-term damage to the growth trajectory of the economy and the quality of life to the residents of Israel. Now, this was in a letter the, uh, written by a bunch of former officials. Now, they, they warned that Israel's economic stability was in part due to the independence of the judiciary and civil servants. So, so there is trust in the economic environment. They also argue in their letter, and I quote, research shows that damage to the quality of government institutions is almost irreversible, and institutional balance that supports growth of, is delicate, Deviation from it may be long-term, since harming political and economic institutions tend to perpetuate themselves over many decades. And they claim that the reforms to the judicial system would lower Israel credit ra ratings. So, so I, without going into the details, I think the important thing to understand is that over the period of several decades, 
the without a constitution and for the country, the judicial uh, section has taken over a lot of power that is much more compared to the other sections of the government, uh, including the Knesset and the administration. So now, without going into the details, there's a huge struggle taking place. Now, of course, Netanyahu, who is uh, in favor of these changes to lower the power of the judicials, uh, the, the uh, judicial section, Netanyahu spoke to senior business officers last week, and he said the opposite was true. And those who invested in Israel did so, did so in spite of the judicial conditions. He gave the examples of the development of natural gas fields over which he, has, he had to grapple with the High Court of Justice about certain things. So Netanyahu argued that the proposed judicial reforms, which would change the selection process for judges, and the role of government advisors and other judicial powers, Netanyahu claimed it would jumpstart the Israeli economy. So there are all kind of protests for and against these changes to the strength of the judicial uh, part of our of our government, if you will. So. Uh, this is a struggle. It's very difficult to go into all the details on a on a short radio program. But the bottom line is that the new government is trying to reduce the power of the of the, the judiciary. That's what it is. The the, the the judiciary has taken a lot of power over the last several decades. It gives it power essentially to do away with laws that the legislature passes and so forth. So I saw an article by a guy named uh, Moshe Dan, uh, who's a historian, and I want to quote from his article because I think it's important. He said that the most important question that we can ask ourselves about our future and our new government is what unites us? What unites us? those of us here living in Israel. This is an example of positive thinking. It is focused on what sustains and strengthens us, what helps and heals, rather than causes to be apart and to hurt us. Positive thinking searches for new ideas and possibilities, but it's also based on reality. Whereas negative thinking ignores reality and the consequences and risks of where that leads. Positive thinking is motivated by creativity, imagination, challenging assumptions, and self-confidence. It is competitive, not combative. That's what positive thinking is. Uh, you take, for example, uh, uh, negative thinking, for example, is... is an example of it is a protest against the government's pros changes to the legal system took place in Tel Aviv last Saturday night. And, and what it essentially is that those who lost the election have refused to accept the results and call for a popular uprising. So they are showing negative, th negative thinking. 
Negative thinking is based on promoting doubt and fear. Now, negative thinking and positive thinking are probably needed in every thinking process, but you have to ask yourself, which is better? In contrast to the previous government, we have a government that was truly elected and represents a majority of Israelis, and one which will last for a number of years if it it's officially supposed to last four years if it's, 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 there's no uh, tremendous um, problem before that, maybe even longer than four years. Yet, its leaders have been attacked before and ever since the election. Those who lost the election have refused to accept the results and are calling for a popular uprising for civil war and insurrection, actually. This is unprecedented, undermines the democratic process, therefore a danger to our national interests, and it's a danger to our, our, our society. People do not want to accept the results of an election. Civil disobedience may be justified when there is no other way to challenge unfair laws and redress grievances, but in a democracy like Israel, we have courts and we have a Knesset, a legislature. Why then are protests that include breaking laws, creating havoc, justified? What purpose do these protests serve? Mob rule uh, and anarchy are really contrary to Judaism and to the Jewish state. For example, there's a there are those who don't like Prime Minister Netanyahu, that's called the anti-Bibi crowd, and there are those who oppose the ministers in his coalition, and they're encouraged by the leftist media, the, the, some of the media, they accuse the government of promoting policies that will undermine Israeli democracy. But the protesters refuse to accept the results of the election. That's the bottom line. They're protesting because they refuse to accept the results of a fair election. This is absolutely undemocratic, and it's an example of negative, destructive thinking. Now, I think that Israel's, Israelis want and need judicial reform because, and they want to end the tyrann tyranny of legal advisors most of whom have left-wing agendas who control government institutions and the courts. Israelis want judges to implement and enforce laws, not to make them up. We need a coherent judicial system. Jewish, Israeli Jewish citizens, Jewish citizens living in places like Judea and Samaria are entitled to live under a civilian, rather a military administration. The people living in the so-called West Bank are under a military jurisdiction, and under the new government, they will be moved to be under a civil administration, and many of the left-wingers are opposed to this. Jews who live in mixed cities like uh, Lud and, and um, Akko and neighborhoods in Israel deserve to be fully protected. Muslim leaders, especially those in Israel, must take responsibility for ending incitement and support for terrorism. 
despite a great deal of negative focus on the National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, he's the one who's being attacked mostly by the left wings. Now, a lot of people don't like him. He, he was years ago, he was uh, a member of the Kahanas group, but he, and over the years, he's become a lawyer. And he and he's uh, he, he's uh, very supportive, for example, of uh, settlements Eugene and Judea and Samaria. And incidentally, whenever there is a terrorist uh, incident, he shows up to give solace to the sufferers. So there's a there's a lot of tension now on Itamar Ben-Gvir. But there is little or no understanding why he is so popular in Israel and why the left lost the recent election. Many people of the center-right felt betrayed by Naftali Bennett and others in his party who put together the previous government. Now, Bennett made an alliance with the left and the Arab parties, which enabled a government with little popular support. In that context, Ben Gavir and his party became a symbol of what most Israelis want. People who are can be trusted and speak for them, and people say things and say what they mean and mean what they say. He's ben Gavir is very outspoken, but he's very consistent. He does, it's very unusual to find him contradicting himself. He, everybody knows where he stands. So everybody knows about it, and that is why he is—he was elected. He's now he's a minister in the government, and he's in the government formally. There's no two ways about it. He's now a minister in the government. A lot of people simply go to the streets protesting against him, but he was—he was elected, so. In addition, the former officers of the army and former diplomats who are associated with the Labour Party have attacked this new government. This has exposed the depth and widespread influence of the Labour Party and its ideology, which is now defunct. Labour Party, when Israel was created, Labour Party was the majority party. And now it hardly gets into the Knesset at all. Labor has lost its power. There are still people who are, who are influenced by the labor ideology. And so Israelis apparently are fed up with a fake peace process. They're fed up with appeasement. And they're fed up with concessions to terrorist organizations. They first and foremost want safety and they want security. That is what is on people's minds. So the bottom line is, in truth, that we living in Israel are like a family. And despite our differences, we need to work together for the, our future, which is common. We share it. We have a shared history. We have a common identity. We can and do differ about what it means to be a Jew, but we do not differ about what our heritage is and the importance of being Jewish. These are our core beliefs. Whether you're, whether you're religious or not religious, your core belief is that you are a Jew. So 
We may differ about the meaning of a Jewish country. We may differ about the meaning of Zionism, but we agree 100% about the centrality of Israel as the homeland of the Jewish people. It's who we are and why we are here. It's interesting that after this recent election, a lot of people said that they're going to leave the country. I compare that to what happened about 15 years ago when the government decided to remove the settlements in the area around Gaza. And there were protests, and, and uh, the streets were lined with protests. I remember I myself was involved in those protests. I was there in, the, in one of the communities when the army came and forcibly removed the people. They left the whole area and gave it over to the Palestinian Authority. Yet, there was not, I never heard then, and I have not heard since then, anyone saying, because of what happened, we're going to leave the country. Never did anybody say, we're going to leave the country because the politics are not something that we like. Now you have people saying after the recent election, they're going to leave the country. I think there's something wrong with the education of these people. They can say that. If you love the country, you fight to have it improve as it should be improved in your eyes to what you think the improvement should be. You stay and you struggle for it. To say, I don't like the way the government is, they're from leaving the country, I think that's really stupid. It's stupid, it's destructive, and it's not constructive. This kind of attitude undermines our ability to confront threats to our existence and to deal with the real challenges we face. Uh, we, what we must do is support the new government, disagree with it, but not try to bring it down and not threaten to leave the country. We are in this together, and the fact that the government is not the kind of government you might particularly want does not mean that you, you should violently demonstrate or say you're going to leave the country. Israel is a democracy, and you use the democratic means to change the government. That is what a democracy is all about. So the fact that, that hundreds or thousands are going into the streets uh, every Saturday night, and every Friday night, by the way, in, here in Jerusalem, it, it, these protests against the government's proposed changes to the legal system by going into the streets it's really very useless. There is, the country is a democracy. You wait until you have a chance to change the government legally by voting, by convincing others that your position is right. That's what a democracy is all about. So it's very important that those who disagree with the government, as well as those who agree with the government, think positively. We are in the only Jewish country that came into existence after almost 2,000 years. It's our baby. We have to protect it. We have to take care of it. Sometimes it misbehaves in our eyes, but it's still our baby. So you have to look upon the state of Israel as the child of the Jewish people. Sometimes it misbehaves 
in your eyes, but it's still your child. So what you try to do is protect it and make it better. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Assalamu alaikum. Shalom, Israel. I'm Ali from Lahore, Pakistan. I love to listen to Israel News Talk Radio. It's wonderful. I've learned a lot about history and culture of Jews and Israel, and it is the only source of independent information about Israel and Pakistan. I love this station. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about the relationship between Israel and the United States. Just a few words. It's a very complicated topic, but we have to realize the United States and Israel have enjoyed a long history of cooperation, which is primarily based on shared values and shared interests. At the same time, every now and then a serious disagreement comes up, and at least once in a decade since the founding of Israel in 1948, Israel's relations with the United States have experienced, experienced friction, sometimes serious uh, friction. For example, back in 1956, Israel signed a secret pact with France and the United Kingdom prior to the 1956 war, and it wasn't shared with the United States, and it created distrust and frustration toward Israel. At that time, the administration in Washington was under Eisenhower. Another thing is the Israeli Air Force attack on a USS Liberty, an American ship, during the Six-Day War threatened the special relations that were starting to form in the mid-1960s between the defense departments, defense agencies of Israel and the United States. Also, another example, President Ford's frustration with the lack of progress in peace negotiations with Egypt and Jordan led his administration to do what he called a reassessment of the relations with Israel. That was back in the mid-1970s. Then you had another problem in the mid-1980s when the Pollard espionage fiasco occurred, and that really soured the relations for a while. And also, there was a bitter quarrel between the United States and the government of Israel under Shamir back in the early 1990s. So every 10 years, it appears, (coughs) there's some friction between the United States and Israel. There are probably more examples. There are certainly more examples. But ties between the United States and Israel have proven to be much stronger than these problems, all kind kind of temporary tensions. Both the United States and Israel always found the appropriate channel of communication 
to quickly resolve their disagreements. However, in recent years, there has been growing political tension, particularly between the Democratic administrations in the United States, that is Obama and Biden, and the right-wing coalitions in Israel. So these tensions seem to threaten the fabric of these relations. The Iran nuclear deal, the war in Ukraine, and the attitude towards Saudi Arabia, given their record on human rights, have all contributed to the tension between Israel and the United States. The common thread between the historical frictions between the two countries is the way in which they revolve regional and global conflicts, particularly Israel's relations with its neighbors. For the most part, Israel and the United States honored an informal mutual understanding to refrain from meddling in each other's internal affairs. There was an exception in particular back in 2015 when um, the, our prime minister spoke at the American Congress, and that was perceived by many in the United States, especially by supporters of the Democratic Party, as a violation of the mutual understanding. While the majority of Israelis thought otherwise, we thought it was important for our Prime Minister to tell the American Congress how much we are opposed to the Iran nuclear deal because it threatens our very existence. And that brought up a lot of tension particularly with the Democratic Party. The, the, that was one of many issues that, uh, that put problems between Israel and the United States. The fact is that Israel and the United States are not equal or symmetric partners. The U.S. is a global superpower while Israel is a tiny country in the Middle East. As a consequence, there is no comparison between the two countries' dependency on one another. Still, that doesn't mean that the United States should feel free to intervene in internal Israeli affairs. Now, one of those internal fears now is the judicial reform that our new government is Israel is trying to undertake. The Americans should not have anything to say about that. Israel is, after nearly 25 years of independence, Israel is quite capable, capable of handling its own internal matters without the need for others like the United States to intervene. The problem of the strength of the judiciary in Israel is an internal Israeli prime problem. There are those in America now who are urging President Biden to embark on what they consider a rescue mission to save Israel. That's wrong. 
the, the to do so carries the implication that the American judicial system is is perfect for a, a role model for others to follow. It's not. One only has to study the history of abortion laws, the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court, and the public protest that followed that overturning to understand the fallacy of implications. An old American saying is, you have to clean up your own house before you tell other people, and that's true. Second, it implies that Israel is some sort of a vassal state that must follow orders from the United States as if they are patron. That's a dangerous assumption. Small as it might be, Israel is a major player in the Middle East and as such has been and will continue to be courted by other neighbors. Other neighbors, even Muslim countries, are courting Israel, finding, creating friendship with Israel. The, uh, it's interesting, by the way, you can recall that the former Soviet Union was the main provider of weapons and ammunition to Israel during the original war at the revolution in 1948, when Israel was newly independent, was fighting for existence, and the Soviet Union uh, uh, had um, Czechoslovakia send arms to Israel. That was part of a strategic gamble made by the Russians, who believed at that time that it's because Israel was led by the Labor Party, which was socialist, the, the Russians believed that Israel would join the Soviet bloc. Also, at the same time, the United States imposed an embargo on arms shipments to Israel. Even during our War of Independence, there was an American arms embargo, and our friends had to smuggle arms out of the United States to come to Israel. So we're lucky with the Prime Minister Ben-Gurion's government chose to ally itself with the United States rather than uh, Russia. Now, people who say the United States now interfere with what's happening in Russia implies that Israel's society and institutions are not mature or strong enough to overcome major internal strife. So they look upon themselves those who say the United States should interfere, the United States should look upon itself as a responsible grown-up to help the children of Israel sort out a solution to their own problems. That is simply wrong. The reality is quite different. Israel's parliament is functioning on a par with parliaments in other developed countries. Israel has a strong and independent press. It has... The, the uh, Israelis how to demonstrate and express their opinions freely. Israeli academic institutions are independent. They chart their own course. And Israel's judicial system, strong and independent. And the people of Israel will ensure that it remains so in the future. What they're trying to do now is to clip its wings a little bit, not to destroy it. Israel and the United States are close friends, and friends have to listen to each other. Americans are welcome to express their views about Israel. 
no matter how critical of our decisions and actions, we have to respect opinions by others and by like-minded individuals. We respect others' opinions. We listen to them. We don't have to necessarily accept them. Friends overcome their disagreements through constructive dialogue and not through arm twisting. So it's we have an internal situation. We're trying to clip the wings somewhat of the judiciary. And it's some, a problem that we resolve ourselves and we do not need and do not accept, should not accept pressure from outside. So that's what I wanted to say about others interfering with our internal issues. Now, I want to touch another subject which I just, just became aware of. The, uh, the a poverty report was just put out by the government. <coughs> it turns out that two million Israelis, two million, are living in poverty According to the annual report of the National Insurance Institute, the, um, it's higher than the previous year, and it's a fifth of Israelis living below what's considered the poverty threshold. Now, this is a very alarming statistic. The cost of living in Israel doesn't bode well. It's a real fear of a collapse of the middle class and the expansion of the circle of poverty. This is a real problem. Poverty rates in Israel are among the highest in developed countries around the world. Poverty in Israel is unequally distributed and is much higher in the socio-geographic periphery, means outside the main cities. It's even higher and the Arab and the ultra-religious Jewish population. Poverty doesn't discriminate, doesn't care about religious belief or skin color or gender. Poverty strikes when and where it can and whoever it can. Poverty is hunger, suffering, and pain that begets ignorance and violence, which Israel is facing on a daily basis in the schools, in the roads, in the medical clinics, clinics, the path to fighting inequality and narrowing poverty is well known to decision makers. First of all, there's a need for public investment in the development of work skills and supporting low-income workers. You have to help these low-income people get educated, integrate into the workforce in a meaning way. These are the most important actions that a government must advance. Decision makers here in Israel have to wake, wake up and realize low-wage jobs deepen the disparities of disadvantaged populations and don't do anything to break the poverty stock cycle. The government's job is to help those who choose to work and provide them with the support and the education that will allow them to earn meaningful wages. Offer them new horizons. 
the there should be an innovative government infrastructure that will offer high quality courses funded by public money. In other words, the courses will offer diverse professional development to scores of low wage and unemployed workers. In other words, poverty is not resolved by pouring money into poor people. It's resolved by improving them so they can earn more. So, if the government really wants to tackle poverty and its roots, the government needs to invest in education early on, from birth to the age three, because research shows that care and education during the first three years of a child's life are highly important for children's mental development and their motor skills. We must emphasize the importance of investing in early education because it has the power to narrow future social gaps. Early education should be primary in the eyes of our government. We have a moral obligation to train the educators responsible for teaching infants and toddlers and give them the professional knowledge and the tools needed to provide quality education. At the same time, we must find resources to raise the wages of educators to encourage additional quality human capital to join the field. It's interesting, one of my daughters is a, uh, an educator. She teaches in high school. She's been an educator for more than 35 years. And just recently, her salary was raised to a de decent amount. For years, teachers got very low salaries, and a lot of people did not join the teaching profession because of the low salaries and the fact that you don't advance very, very quickly. And therefore, investing in education and the education of teachers has got to be prime. Otherwise, we'll remain in a cycle of poverty. And finally, the government must find ways to support the elderly in Israel. Many people in Israel don't have a pension, and they're living in poverty. Disbursements can be distributed in an intelligent manner, so those in greater need will receive more. They can cut costs and help those in need. After all, in a developed country like Israel, the elderly should not have to choose between food and medicine. They don't have enough money. They have to choose between food and medicine, and that is wrong. Poverty does not necessarily have to be predetermined, and gaps can be narrowed if we set our minds to it. So what we have to do is call on the decision-makers in government to stop wasting time. After many years of elections, we've had five elections in the last three and a half years, and there's been social and economic inactivity, we have to begin advancing the education of our children, and we have to work to narrow the social gaps in Israel. Because when you have social gaps, not only do you have people 
who were thrust into a life of poverty. But if you have people living in poverty, you'll find that they will not be interested in doing their share to preserve the country. What I mean is, for example, if you're a, a kid raised in a poor family who sees no future for himself economically will say to himself, why should I join the army and fight for this country when I'm going to end up poor no matter what? We, we have to solve the poverty problem in Israel because it's not just a problem of poverty, it's a problem of Israel's future. I just wanted to share these thoughts with the listeners. Until next time, take care of yourself. Dan Shapiro, signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.